Hello, and welcome to episode 34 of Craft, Cook, Read, Repeat, a conversation about crafting food and books. I'm Monica. And I'm Courtney. Today is Thursday, February 20th, 2020. Ooh, 2020, 2020. That's hard to say. That's a lot of 20s. Anyway, thank you to our listeners, both old and new. We hope this podcast will continue to be something you put on repeat. How are you, Courtney? Great. How are you? I'm good, too. I had a profound thought. Let's have it. Back when we first started, or we're talk- even just when we were talking about starting, and I was envisioning us doing this like once a month, and you said, no, let's do every other week. I said, okay. That's well, my fault? Yeah, it's totally <laughs> your fault. I was much more chill about the whole thing. I was afraid that we wouldn't have enough to talk about doing it every other week. And every single time, I get ready, and I'm, and I'm thinking, oh my gosh, I have so much to talk about. <laughs> so it's good. Very interesting, and also really good for... For us and for the listeners, too. Yeah, I never have a shortage. I might have a shortage of recipes sometimes, and I'm not as fast a reader as you, but I always have paintings to talk about. That's true. We have many good things. So this time, yes, on the needles, on the easel, on the table, on the nightstand, and let's get started. Away we go. All right, on the needles. I haven't had any big meetings in the past two weeks, so... I made a little bit of progress. <laughs> the meetings dictate how much you knit? On my vanilla sock. Oh, okay. Just on Sorry. the sock. On this one particular project. Oh, no. Don't worry. There's plenty of knitting. Okay. Vanilla is the New Black by Anna Fletcher. My on-the-go knitting. Um, so I have gotten through the heel turn because that's the part where I actually have to pay attention. So I did want to try and get through that so that the next time I get to a big meeting, I can just knit, 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 knit on the foot. Well, then you have to time that because you don't want to run out of foot knitting in the middle of something that's going to be really long. It's a struggle. I don't know if that sentence has ever been uttered in the history of spoken language. You have to time the foot knitting. You do. Like it's just... All of you sock knitters are going to agree with me. Okay. <laughs> Might not be your issue. It is our issue. And this is in the White Birch Fiber Arts 80-20 sock in the Hellbent Feminist She-Devil colorway, which just makes me so happy. For us non-sock knitters, is the foot part like the what goes across the sole? What do you mean by the foot part? Like the foot. The part that would go around your foot. In between. The whole thing? Yeah. Oh, okay. You're knitting in a circle. That's why it's so relaxing and why you oh. can do it without well, looking. Okay. Until you get to the toe, when you have to decrease because toes are shaped. And the heel part is different because you've got to make it turn. Okay, one last question. Mm-hmm. Do you normally start at the cuff? You can start at the cuff. I do. You can also start at the toe. Some people prefer it that way. And when you look at a sock pattern, mm-hmm. can you reverse it if it's a direction that you don't want to go? Yes, it can be tricky depending on the pattern, because if you're knitting it down, it's going to look one way, and if you're going to knit it up, it could be a totally different thing. So it depends on the pattern, but yeah, you could make it work. And there's also socks that start like in the middle of the top of the foot. You could probably start with the heel. You can do all sorts of crazy things. I've always envisioned this from the toe up. I have never, ever thought that you would knit from the top down. Do not even blow my mind with starting at the heel because that makes no sense. (laughs) It does. It does. It It does. does. (laughs) I like starting at the cuff 
because when you get because it's all the same all the same all the same number of stitches a little bit of crazy in the middle with the heel back to all the same number of stitches and then zoop, for the toe so you're decreasing at okay. the end and it feels like it's going faster it's like the drive home it's yeah. faster and you also if you start you usually start with a ribbing so knit purl and you're moving your yarn back and forth and it's a little slower if you start with the toe you're increasing stitches and then you can probably gauge a little more accurately now i can figure it out really well potentially you could more accurately figure out how long you need the sock to be before you get to the heel mm, so you might okay. get a little bit better fit but then it's all the same and then you finish with the ribbing which just kills me every time but you can then if you divide your yarn into two equal thalls you can make it as long as you want without worrying about running okay. out of yarn which is if you have a larger foot especially useful yeah. like i keep wanting to make that work for simon socks because i have made his leg part too long and then run out at the toe <laughs> okay which you could always use other yarn and because no one's going to see the toe unless you're walking around the house in your socks thank so, you it's I, a preference thing i just thought there was one way and I should know better that there's more than yeah. one way for everything. It's true. All right. I totally interrupted you. Sorry for the detour. No, it was a good one. That's very interesting. Like, it would never would have occurred to me that you would think you could only do it one way. So there we go. So yeah, so I'm still working on that. And then I started two new things because I'm crazy. <laughs> Haven't finished anything, but I started two new things. So the first is my mystery gnome along from Sarah Shira of Imagine Landscapes. And she does gnomes. She's done gnome sweaters. She mostly does cute little decorative gnomes. I'd made one for my aunt for Christmas in 49ers colors. And so this is her third mystery gnome along where she gives you the clues. You don't know what it's going to look like. She tells you what colors you need, what kind of yarn, all that good stuff. And then the clues come out and you knit part of it each day. So this one is a color work one. We knew that. So she gives you advice about choosing the colors, which I kind of ignored because that's what I do. <laughs> so there's some issues as I expected there would be, but that's just me. But it is the longest hat ever. It is like, oh no. And the, no, it's supposed to be though. Oh, that okay. part's no, that part's fine. It's supposed to be really long. It's like 11 inches long for this cute little gnome hat. Um, so I chose a black yarn for my well, the hat, it's two fairly equal colors. It kind of switches back, which is the main one. So I chose a black sparkly one that I had left over from a shawl that I had done. And then I found this multicolored, bright, it's like pinks and greens and chartreuse and orange and all these colors. And I thought it would be a good contrast with the black, except that there's occasionally black speckles in the, yarn, in the multicolored yarn, so you can't see it all. Also, I haven't used double-pointed needles in a very long time yeah they were a little fiddly at the end so my tension isn't great the hat kind of squishes in I'm hoping it'll block out okay but it's still it's pretty cute and I think once it gets all put together and we get the rest of the the knitting done and the gnome built and but it's been super fun and there's 10 or 11 clues over like two weeks fun. two and a half so yeah so it's just a little tiny bit of knitting for each of them um, which is really nice because you feel like you're accomplishing yes, a lot. And you don't have to wait good. a week in between clues. So that's kind of annoying sometimes. And then I started a sweater. 
I got tired of my Elton. I knew I wasn't going to finish it before stitches. Oh, that was what started it because I was thinking, what am I going to wear to stitches? Because it's very important when going to any knitting event to have your knit wardrobe be this on point. This is why I can't go. <laughs> you went last time and had a great scarf that everyone yeah, complimented but it was you on. Hot as heck in there, oh, yeah. and <laughs> that is the problem because I was thinking I would wear my the scent cardigan because I got the yarn there last year. Actually, yeah. I knit it within the year. I want to show it off, but I think it's supposed to be in the upper sixties uh-huh, the next it's two days. Really warm there. Yeah. And Santa Clara is farther south than us, so they're usually warmer than we are. I could make a goal, though, mm-hmm. because I had an idea to finish your about stitches. No, who cares? <laughs> I had an idea. to. There's a shawl that I really love. Okay. And I think that I um, would wear it a lot. Mm-hmm. And if I knit it within the year, mm-hmm. so the clock starts ticking now, Okay. then... I can finish it up before stitches next year. When it's still in Santa when Clara. When it's still in Santa Clara and go down with you yeah. and wear my shawl, my scarf, cute thing with a t-shirt and jeans. Perfect. And draw knitters. Oh. Like I'm trying to get better about people. So if I yeah. practice people and my shawl in the next year and then next year I go and sketch knitters in their knitwear. I love it. I do too. And you can check out yarn from around the world. Mm-hmm. Nice. Because right. I will still be do- the lemon latitude. I should say is like a five-year project. Oh yeah, no. Well, that's what I'm saying. Check out <laughs> anyway yarn from around the world. That's excellent. Do you need yarn for this? No. I could get you a kit. I'm sure there's. Ooh, tempting. We'll talk after. Let me know. <laughs> so I needed two days because my plan is still to go Friday and Saturday. So I need two outfits. So I had the Descent cardigan, which is probably now not going to happen. So I needed something else. The Elton cardigan, even if I finished it, which wasn't going to happen, wasn't going to be right for going to stitches. It's, you know, really thin. It's got the mohair lace and the fingering weight. That's a single, I think. So it was just going to be like having bags on my shoulders. It was just going to wreck it. Yeah. And it seemed really too fragile to be in a crowded space. So I decided just I'd start something new. And I had two weeks, so obviously I could finish it. Oh my gosh. I did not actually finish it. Spoiler alert. I'm pretty darn close though. Um, so I picked. Seriously? Uh, well, so I still have both sleeves and maybe another three or four inches on the body. Okay. I have a big hunk of fabric though. It's pretty awesome. And I'm totally motivated. And even if I don't finish it for stitches, I'm going to finish it pretty quickly. So the pattern is Brickyard by Elizabeth Doherty. And I have been wanting to knit one of her patterns forever. And just haven't got around to it. And the yarn is Studio DK from Neighborhood Fiber Company in the Sanctuary City colorway. And I got that yarn at the Vogue Knitting Live, but Neighborhood Fiber Company will be at Stitches. They always are. So I figured, and Elizabeth Doherty will also be. She has a booth, uh, Blue Bee Studios, at Stitches as well. So I figured I could show off the finished sweater in her design and show off the finished yarn in their colorway um be a great combo so not happening but it's gonna be awesome i'm super excited it's a really cool pattern her pattern writing is so precise you you open it up and it's a bajillion pages but it's because she takes you through all the steps she has you put in markers when you're doing short rows so you know exactly where to turn you don't have to think about it 
She does a lot of shaping up at the top, so it's going to fit really well. Mm, critical for me for all the yeah. sweater knitting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah, You can cut that and put it at the end. <laughs> oh, no, that's staying right here. <laughs> um, so, yes, lots of shaping, but she explains it really well. It's super clear. And so the top of it is this kind of brickwork pattern that's the brickyard name mm -hmm. and then um, there's this nice lateral braid detail and then it's an a-line just stockinette straight knitting oh there's a little shape well there's the a-line shape a-line shaping and then kind of a curved hem and the sleeves are well they look fairly basic but i'm sure there's some details that i'm missing there's a nice slip stitch detail along the edges so it looks kind of like a seam it's really it's just beautiful i'm so so happy with it the awesome. Yarn, the yarn is really nice to work with, and so that it, is like reason numero uno, right? Yeah. I mean, it has to be, and it's DK, so it's not taking forever, like fingering weight yarn would. Yeah, it's just great, super. Um, so that's all the knitting, but then I did something new that also involves two two needles. <laughs> it's true. So I took a leather working class at Workshop SF which was fantastic. Um, and I posted some pictures about that as well. So a group of friends and I went and another friend had taken classes. I think it was a macrame class. They do all sorts of classes. Um, they do macrame and beer making and chocolate and jewelry and woodworking. So we took leather and they have a bunch of different leather making classes. So we were making a leather tote. It was great. So there were nine people total in the class. Five of us and then two other couples. The instructor has been doing this for a while, it seems like. So she told us, you know, we talked about the kinds of leather, where she gets her leather. And she had cut out the body of the bag. And we um, did the practice on the pocket. There was a pocket in the inside of the bag. So we practiced cutting out our patterns. We got to stitch the pockets together. She had done most of the stitching on the bag which was really great because she used to make you do all that, not make you, like that was part of the class, but that takes about an hour. Nobody needs that much practice, but we did sew up the corners of the bags. Oh, that's the hard part so that was too. Yeah, so that was good. So we learned how to go around the seam in the corner and the little bumps and stuff. And then we got to attach, um, to cut and attach our straps with the hardware and punch out holes to put the hardware through. It was super fun. And you use the two needles when you're sewing the leather closed using the saddle stitch, you use the two needles. Mm -hmm. So that was really cool. It was great. It was such a fun day. It was a beautiful day. So the door open, all sorts of windows, and we brought snacks. <laughs> Everyone made fun of us because we're like, we're the moms. We bring snacks. I get laughed at whenever that happens, too. My friend Joy and I, when we go to Social Sketch, we mm -hmm. bring snacks. And it's a rather younger set. And we roll in, you know, with... Our Trader Joe bags and yeah, why wouldn't you bring snacks? And we're old ladies, sorry, Joy, but heroes of social sketch because we brought cookies and yeah. brie. Nice, yeah. We had cheese platter. We bought a bunch of chips and crackers and yeah, excellent. It was good. It was a great day. So we definitely all want to go back and do a different class. Awesome. They have a pretty robust Instagram site, too. So people, local folks should take a look at yeah. their diverse offerings. Yeah. some good stuff. And it was fun. And their motto is make stuff, drink beer. So 
<laughs> kind of, they're kind of a casual, relaxed environment. Uh, oh, sewing class! They had a sewing boot camp going on next door. We had fabulous. The, we had the bigger classroom. That was great. They all looked a little Crammed. jammed in there. Yeah, yeah. That would be a good class for me to take. Although I don't actually own a sewing machine, so yeah. But you can borrow one of mine. Yeah. So that is all my on the needles. Whew! I was busy. Good stuff. Yeah. What is on the easel? Well, three things. I'm painting up a storm for the great country of Australia. I had a little moment this week when I thought, what am I actually doing? Because Australia is huge and incredibly diverse. There's no way that I can do this justice. However, I'm going to try. I have decided on sort of a course of action for the next few paintings that I feel pretty good about. And I keep reminding myself that this is my project. And if I want to go back to Australia, you know, if something comes up down the road or I get a survey that talks about a particular place in Australia, then I can go back to it. And I'm really curious about Tasmania, and I think I could do eight paintings on Tasmania alone. Anyhow, that is going strong, and I have an abundance of ideas. And if anything, my problem right now is a lack of time. Full stop. But in the course of all of this, it was Valentine's Day, and we're not like Hallmark kind of people. No offense, Hallmark. I have boys and a husband who might grab flowers on the way home, you know, if he thinks of it, or if he's got extra time, a bar of matcha chocolate. Mm. However, this year we really nailed Valentine's Day, or at least he and I did. I painted the day before. We had had a conversation earlier in the week about if you could steal an animal from the wild and bring it home as a pet, (laughs) what would you steal? This was something that the boys were talking about when my husband was traveling. And one of the kids wanted a ring-tail lemur as a pet, which is illegal, so don't worry. or It's not happening. And the other one wanted like a lizard or a dragon, something like that. And then when my husband came in a few days later, we asked him that same question, and he said a honey badger. So I had these three animal conversations, or these three animals in conversation with my people. And so, What did you pick? Oh, I didn't. I just locked that, I filed that away, and then I painted them a valentine of each of those animals, and they came out really good. And I did the Australian water dragon for the big lizard, Mm. and it's so colorful and vibrant, and it's one of my favorite images, but I gave it as a gift, so I can't really, I might tuck it into the collateral Australia stuff, but thrilled to paint that for them. And then my husband did his Valentine gift back at Christmas time because, and I brought it over here because you're a librarian and mm-hmm. I, by trade, and I thought you would get a real kick out of this. So my husband got me. Oh, I did that. A, for, oh, wait, the sketchbook part? I did that for Simon last year. Did you really? Did yeah. he finish it? No. Okay. So Adam got me the sketchbook project, which is like, um, I think it's like a five by seven blank sketchbook. It's paper bound. And what you're meant to do is you have like six or eight months and you're meant to fill it up and then send it back to the sketchbook library in Brooklyn, which is the world's largest library of artist books. And it's like from all over the globe. And some of them, there are 40,000 of them that are digitized. 
I haven't even had a minute to jump on and see what some of the digital... He did buy me a digitized one. So it'll be... You'll all be able to see it at some point. So this is pretty much the most amazing gift ever. (laughs) And I am so excited. And it came with this whole booklet about different, like, 99 art challenges to think about when you're trying to fill up your book. And it's got, it's like another book just with all of these prompts in it, Mm -hmm. although I don't have any problem with ideas. So I am trying to think of what kind of paintings I'm going to put in here and how I'm going to be able to give it away because the hard thing for, it's like selling art. When I'm painting things now, I have to think, this doesn't, this is just mine for now. It's like a child. And then I send it off into the world that does not belong to me. So I need to think about this sketchbook this way. But I also have been in talks with other people who have done this project, and they recommend surgically removing the paper and putting in my own paper stock because this isn't gouache friendly. This paper isn't gouache friendly. Yeah, I think Simon is more of a... Just a pencil, pencil sketch, yeah. so it's not a problem for him. So speaking of gouache, I got a question through yeah. the airwaves about gouache. I talk about gouache a lot, and every once in a while I define it for our listeners who are sometimes more knitting inclined. <laughs> but even this question came from a watercolor person. So I thought I would do a quick gouache 101. And we also haven't talked about it in a while, so... Yeah. And new people come on. and Yeah. So gouache is my absolute number one medium of choice. It is a water-based medium, and it is thicker than watercolor. It has a higher pigment load, and it also has more opacity. So that means that there's probably white paint injected into it, whereas when you're painting with watercolor, anything that you want white is generally the paper you have to think like sort of in negative. Gouache There's is so forgiving because you can paint right on top of the different layers. You can do white last, which is generally how I work. But one of the things that really trips people up is that there's there's watercolor paint, there's designer gouache paint, and then there's something called acrylic gouache, which is like a step between gouache and acrylic. Sounds like something from the Marvel Universe. Exactly. It's this mind meld between gouache and acrylic. Acrylic gouache. So the really tricky thing about watercolor and gouache is that they reactivate. So if your paint dries in your palette and you walk away and go have lunch and you come back and sit down, wet your brush, and you can go at that paint that's sort of dried in the tray, it reactivates really beautifully because the binders in it are honey or gum arabic. And then the pigments might be a little bit more diluted because they've already had some water in it, but generally you can just grab that brush and keep going. Acrylic gouache, because it has acrylic polymer in it, does not reactivate. Mm. So some people don't like that aspect of acrylic gouache. Like once you squeeze it out of its tube, that's it. Like you need to use it in that painting session or you need to cover it really tightly with plastic wrap or something like that. It's It behaves a lot like acrylic paint. The benefit of using acrylic gouache is that 
you can paint on any surface like you would acrylic paint and not have to worry about it. Like when I paint on paper, if, it, if you drip water on it, even if the painting is dry, it'll leave a watermark. It seeps into that paint. And so it's a little bit more fragile, I guess is maybe not the right, the best word for it, but it's just different. It's just different is all. I am personally a huge gouache person because I think it has such great saturation and that's what I was looking for. I was painting for several years with watercolor and I just couldn't figure out how to make my watercolor really vibrant. The beauty of watercolor is that it's sort of washy and generally it's lighter and I just never figured out how to bring in that contrast. I think if I went back to it, which I'm contemplating, I would do things differently in a, in a watercolor practice. But anyway, I like gouache because it's, it's a big, vibrant kick in the teeth of paint. So that was a lot of talking about gouache. But very interesting. Thank you. So that is it from me. Okay, and you are still taking submissions for Lemon Latitude. We're Happily. Gonna, we're going to do our drawing for another hoodie on March 5th. I might have said March 6th last time, but I think that is a Friday. And we record on Thursdays. Yeah. Double check your dates, but that's what I'll be doing. So if you want a, another chance to win the hoodie, send in a Lemon Latitude survey. Yep, and, we'll and you can it. find that at CourtneySpillane.com or you can just reach out to me via direct message and I will send you one in the mail. And the links will be in the show notes. Excellent. So on the table, um, well, let's let's keep going with the Valentine's Day theme. Oh yeah, because I did. Well, I didn't make it on Valentine's Day, but that's when I was thinking about making it for. It didn't happen until President's Day because that's when I had time. But it was the bittersweet brownie shortbread from Melissa Clark on the New York Times. Oh my gosh, so amazing! So it's a layer of shortbread, and then on top of that is a layer of brownies. And it's just fantastic. <laughs> so good. And as I was looking, I was trying to find the recipe after I, when I actually came time to make it. And there's actually a bunch of them out there. So apparently it's a thing, but I did not know that. This one was really good. The contrast between like the buttery, flaky shortbread and then the gooey chocolate goodness on top Yum. is just so delicious. So good. Family really liked it. And she's really pretty clear in her directions about you cannot overbake the brownies. And I think that was really key because then you wouldn't have that contrast. You like mm. got the fully cooked or overcooked brownie on top. And it makes it like a 9 by 13 pan. So we've been having to force ourselves to eat it constantly <laughs> this week so that it wouldn't go stale. And, you know, again, with struggle in my life. So, yeah. so that was pretty delicious. And I highly recommend, and I made it gluten-free, so I just used my, I think it was the Bob's Red Mill, whatever they call theirs, cup for cut, no, yeah, cup for cut, one, one for one, for one. Mm. Um, and that worked fine. Oh, good. So, yeah, so that was good. Um, and then I made Smitten <laughs> Kitchens Chickpea and Kale Shakshuka, which I don't know that I've made shakshuka before. I keep seeing it. It's kind of, it's usually a tomato-based saucy business, and then you <laughs> in a pan, and you crack eggs into it, and then the eggs kind of poach oh, in the yeah. sauce. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I have never made that. It was delicious. 
I don't know if it was just this one in particular or just in general, they're really delicious. This was good. Again, the only problem was having enough for everyone. I think I did six eggs. No, maybe I tried to get eight in there. Getting eight eggs in there was a little tricky. So maybe you could do two pans. I don't know. Anyway, so this one had, well, as you might guess from the names, chickpea and kale in there. Oh, and then you put feta on top. I love feta. I wonder if my guys would eat that. My guys loved it. They were super happy about it. And za'atar. Oh. Sprinkle some za'atar on top. I think that was what I was really intrigued by. Like, oh, I can use that spice. Right. That was great. Oh, and side note, I bought the duka and the umami from Trader Joe's recently. I haven't tried them out yet, but I will report back. I have back. the duka, but I haven't used it yet. Yeah. I know one of my cookbooks uses it. And there were a bunch of recipes I wanted to try, but I couldn't find it. Not Trader Joe's has it, so what I just got to remember which cookbook that is. Anyway, so this was really good. It had some mint in it, you know, tomato sauce, mm -hmm. using canned tomatoes or crushed tomatoes. Well, they come in a can, so they're canned. Onions, garlic, all that good stuff, some other spices. Um, so easy. You make it all on the stove. I think a lot of times she said they'll have you put it in the oven to finish, but she didn't find that to be necessary. Timing the eggs was a little tricky. They didn't look like they were cooked, but I think they actually were. Mm. So ours were a little bit overcooked, but not too bad. But yeah, it was delicious. My boys both really liked it. That was a win. Excellent. And then tofu lettuce wraps from the dinner plan. Another one that I didn't think would go over terribly well. Kind of marinate slices of tofu and then bake them. And I think it was a like a soy, some sort of soy mm -hmm. sauce marinade. And then serve them in lettuce cups. And I... Like it's tofu larb yeah exactly mm. and the only complaint was that there was not enough so again double the tofu i know I lady know. well but it was tofu i didn't i didn't think they would be all that into it yeah but and i made worst rice. case then you have lunch well that's true <laughs> very true so i've learned my lesson theoretically um that one was really good and that's from the dinner plan by kathy brennan and jane campion that has a lot of good recipes. I pulled that one back out. I was using that lot for a while, and it wasn't. Mm -hmm. and so I'm back on that one. The Instapot, Instant Pot Adventures continue. I made my risotto again, but doubled it. Had a panic in the, in the middle, and <laughs> like, what are the rules about doubling? Like, does it change anything? Because I had just set it for the regular yeah. same time. So I pulled up a video and watched a little Instant Pot doubling a recipe video. And she said it's, it depends on the size of the food, not the amount. So doubling it won't affect it unless you're also changing. Like if you had a one pound roast and we're doing a two pound roast, then it would take longer because you've got to actually get in there. But if you're doing something like rice, the pieces all stay the same. That's what affects it. What might affect it is the volume. Right. So she said just maybe cook it a little, a few minutes less. So since I'd already set my timer, when releasing the pressure, you the recipe calls for letting the pressure release on its own for eight minutes. I think I only did it for six and then let it all the pressure out. Mm. And it was super creamy and delicious. I saw an advertisement for a something cooker and it did air frying as well. Does yours air oh, fry or not? I don't know. It has a lot of buttons that I have not explored. Like there's a yogurt button and... The air frying interests me, not enough to buy another appliance, I think, yeah. but... I'll have to check that out. They also, in the New York Times, or no, Food 52, had an Instapot flourless chocolate cake. 
that is I supposed think to be need amazing. To get right on I am that. absolutely getting right on that. It called for the <laughs> like super high fat European butter, so I have bought that, and everything else was pantry staples. So I just had to find the time to to make that happen. But I will definitely be reporting back. And I also made baked beans, which were delicious and super easy because you just throw everything in there and yeah. let it rip. Easy, great. So I am I am definitely enjoying. That's great. It's good that you're using it. Uh, Yeah, so that is it for me. All right. I have a couple repeat recipes and a couple new ones. I made, so you know I can do chocolate chip cookies blindfolded. Mm -hmm. We do like family dinner with my in-laws and sometimes my brother-in-law on Sunday nights. And I almost always just roast a chicken and do a lot of vegetables and, you know. Delicious. Really easy Sunday night dinner. And I realized oh, I don't have anything for dessert. This is right before dinner. So I thought I'm going to throw together chocolate chip cookies. Everybody always loves them. People can take them home so that they're not lingering in my house, tempting me. And so... Like an entire pan of right, brownies. exactly. So I totally threw together these chocolate chip cookies. And normally I really cream the butter and the sugars like to the point of what's one of your secrets right and I have held fast to this forever well I didn't really have time and I thought how bad can it be so I just kind of like let it go for a couple minutes and then did the rest (laughs) I mean they're chocolate chip cookies right they're not gonna be bad threw them all together and then normally I also chill them in the fridge but Mm -hmm. these guys I just room temp threw them into the oven. They were really different. I had forgotten. I am such a creature of habit for certain things. And I use the same technique every single time for chocolate chip cookies. And everybody loves them because they're kind of dense and a little bit underbaked and chewy. These guys were definitely crispier. You could sort of, like the granulated sugar hadn't softened I guess from all of the creaming that the butter usually does so the whole cookie was a little bit crispier and it had like kind of a good grit Hmm. from the sugar not it was not bad because it was really well blended they were a little bit taller I think because I didn't chill them you know they didn't have the oh I would have thought they would have spread more because the butter wasn't so yeah, I don't know. The whole thing was, I don't understand the science Magical behind Magical and mysterious. Um, but they were definitely different, and we were all kind of like, hello, <laughs> new friend. It was so funny, because it's something that I make constantly. I mean, I probably do make a batch of chocolate chip cookies every other week, and that's not exaggerating. No. It's pretty obscene. Anyway, I did there the turkey burgers from Milk Street. The This has become a huge favorite recipe at our house. I really think that I go back to the Parmesan cheese being a key ingredient in Mm. these guys. I didn't make the accompanying herbed mayonnaise. We just dressed them, you know, each according to taste. And I served them with English muffins because I didn't have any brioche buns, you know, not fancy. English muffins are delicious and they are like highly underrated. Uh Uh-huh. They're so versatile. Yeah. Yeah. Those have been making a a, like a regular reappearance in the routine. Nice. Of all things. So yeah. funny. That's um, a good one though. And my friend Kelly bought this book and she has been working her way through it and has been very happy and successful. Good. In the I, recipes. So. I really, there are so many recipes in there that 
we really loved and surprised us. Yeah. Yeah. New stuff. I made slow cooker butter chicken. Ooh. I think this is from that modern proper website again. Slow cooker butter chicken. Wonderful flavor. This you could do in your Instapot. It has a slow cooker feature. Or I have a slow Or feature. I don't think it I mean, I don't know. Yeah, you could there's a lot of recipes that'll give you directions for either. Yeah. Either or. This was totally easy to set and forget basically and it cooked in four hours I think and it was so flavorful it calls for a lot of different spices and garam masala and it has cinnamon and maybe some onions in it really flavorful it calls for heavy cream at the end and I totally forgot and it was fine so if you wanted to make it non-dairy, have at it. It's super easy. I served it with um, a jasmine rice with a lot of cilantro and sautéed spinach. Ooh, delicious. Really, really tasty. Everyone loved it. Was there a lot of prep beforehand or did no. you just dump everything in? So none of this like sautéing the chicken? Nope. Excellent. I know. That's always it's so annoying. It's meant to be super soft chicken. I mean, cool. it, it is really, really tender. Um, the hardest part is that you have to chop up chicken, and I don't know about you, but I hate raw chicken. Who doesn't? Then, for Lemon Latitude, I made a chocolate pavlova. Oh, delicious. And I made that for family dinner, and there was not one stitch of it left. Was this a new one or the one that you usually make? This is one that I have made before, except I I think I need to make another pavlova. So, no one's going to argue historically, with that. I have made it with straight up egg whites. It calls for four or six, I can't recall. This is a Nigella Lawson recipe. Um, and what is a pavlova? Oh, a pavlova is named, and maybe, ah, you might know this better than I, you being the dancer, is named after Anna Pavlova for her performance in Swan Lake. Oh, actually, I don't know that. I know it was named after her, but I don't know for so, which performance. The egg whites are beat at diff- like you at you get it to like soft fluffy, which is like a certain stage of the performance, and then by the end of it, it should be straight out like tool. Oh, really? I guess so. Wow, that's what I've heard. Oh, um, I have not heard all that detail. So I had. It's kind of like a giant meringue. It is a giant meringue that you then put whipped cream and different berries or different fruits on top. Yeah, so it's more like a meringue bowl right. instead of a like Hershey Kiss kind of shape. Right. Which is what I would think and, of a meringue as being. And this one, being chocolate, mm-hmm. has semi-sweet chocolate grated in, chopped, chopped and folded in, and also it calls for a teaspoon of balsamic vinegar, yeah. which, mmm, so it's good. It's so delicious, yeah. I think my mistake with this one was that I used um, egg white from a carton. Mm. I had some, and I, when I was pouring it in, I thought, ooh, this I probably shouldn't use because when you're separating an egg white, you can capture that. Is it albumin? Like those, there's two pieces of actual egg white inside the egg, and when you separate that from the yolk, that little piece is really what volumizes your egg whites as a whole and and keeps it stay there 
I think mm-hmm. if I've got this right, and you know I will let you know if I'm wrong. Yeah. I have heard in the past that I should be using like a meringue stabilizer. Here in the U.S., Wilton makes one that is actually like an egg substitute. So it's not, you just mix it with water and it like takes the place of an egg. So the egg stabilizer could help support the structure of the pavlova. I did it and I thought I had beautiful egg whites, even the ones that came from the carton. I did half and half. And then when I put it in the oven, I mean, it was nice and tall. It was like two and a half inches tall when I in a nine inch round. Mm -hmm. And then when I put it in the oven and then open the oven to let it cool, the whole thing had sort of spread like an an inch beyond my border. Uh So I know that. And I mean, it was like not even an inch tall. It was a pancake. It was, they call it like a brownie cloud. Okay. It was still delicious. I mean, I smeared whipped cream, no sugar, just the whipped cream over the top of it, and then a ton of raspberries. And as I said, there was nothing left, not a hope or a prayer of any leftover of this thing, sadly. So all that to say, I think I need a little technique work with my pavlova. It is really traditional Australian dessert. There's another dessert called a lamington, which is like a little cake with the, I'll make those for the next time, with the dusted coconut, I guess, on the outside, that I'm excited to try that one too. Oh, that's why you couldn't bring me a treat today, because pavlova doesn't really travel. It doesn't last either. (laughs) That too. Yeah, it was pretty messy. They're so good. So good. Yeah. I should make miniature ones. That would be good. good. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Individual. So that my culinary journey hasn't been very vast this week on account of travel and stuff. That's okay. You made a pavlova. It wasn't that hard. Nobody needs to know. Disappointing. I mean, I would have liked to have folded it in half. and <laughs> It was so flat. For pavlova. Yeah. All right. On the nightstand. What you reading? Oh, so many things. I am now, I have my like regular book that I'm reading. I have my audio book because... I have all these hardcover books from the library. I don't, I'm not taking my Kindle with me. So I keep finding myself at places where like I'm having a lunch by myself. So I need something to read. So I pull out my phone and get something that I've bought on my Kindle Mm -hmm. app on the phone. So I've got like three books going at a time now. I don't know anything about that. Driving me (laughs) bonkers. Anyway, it's working out okay. So the first one I finished is Love Lettering by Kate Claiborne, which is the one where the lady's the calligrapher. Oh, yes. It's a romance. Takes place in New York City. She was doing wedding invitations and programs and whatnot, but a couple came in and she thought, whew, this is not going to work. And in the invitation, using a secret code, she wrote mistake. Like, nobody would notice it except her. And anyway, except that the groom is like a numbers guy and a patterns guy. And so he noticed so a year later, he comes in to ask her about it, and the wedding didn't happen for various reasons. So they end up talking, and she invites him along on a project. Anyway, it's a romance. We can see where this is going. <laughs> so I loved the descriptions of her work and the letters, and they go on these field trips around the city, looking at signs and all the hand-painted signs and how the style of letter that you use can really speak to what 
the market is, you know, what your yeah. what your business is, and they talk a lot about the city and so that part I really liked. I love the female character. The guy, he was very Bella Swan from Twilight, where you're like, why? Why is anybody interested in this person? They're boring. And as she gets to know him, he has a lot of hidden characters, and he's just like the strong, silent type, and there's a lot of things going on. But it didn't make sense that she would be interested. Well, she does spend a lot of time talking about how hot he is, so clearly that's what it is, but she's also trying to justify it. They just didn't make sense as a couple until at the end. Like, he just had no personality mm-hmm. until you got into it. So that part was a little frustrating. But the rest of it was really good. The romance, I mean, it ended up being a lovely romance. And so there was a lot of really good things in this book. Just not him. <laughs> Although apparently he was hot, but it's a book, so I couldn't actually see that. Right. So that was a problem. And it's subjective. Exactly. So anyway, that was Love Lettering by Kate Claiborne. And then I read two ton of French books. Well, I read one and I listened to one. And I think there's only two more that she's written, so you guys are almost done hearing about these. (laughs) The one I listened to was The Secret Place, and I read The Likeness. So The Secret Place is the companion to the one that really annoyed me, that had the woman of color in the murder squad, and she thought everyone was out to get her, and it turned out she was just not getting the joke, for the most part. So this one takes place before it. I think her books are set up in pairs. So there's two partners in the murder squad and you get different stories, different murders, investigations from each person's viewpoint. So this one happens before that one. And this is how they get together and become partners. This is from the guy's point of view. So it's interesting in that you see the issues she ha- she's having mm-hmm. from his point of view and that she was not totally imagining things. So this one is... He is working in cold cases, and a year ago there was the body of a teenage boy found on the grounds of the local private girls boarding high school, and it hasn't been solved yet. One of the girls at the school brings him a new piece of evidence. She knows him from a previous case, um, and her dad is a cop as well. So he has this new piece of evidence in in the case. So he takes it over to the murder squad, to the woman that had been working it, because the other guy has her since retired, um, and that's our, our girl from the next book. And his thought is, ooh, if I can get in on this, I bring her the new evidence, she lets me work with her, I do a great job, I help get the solve, then I can make murder because that's what everybody wants. So they go through, the rest of it is, you know, working on the case. So that part was fine, and then it was really interesting. The interesting part for me, other than that, he sort of justifies her not being totally crazy that there's some really beautiful writing about what it's like to be a teenage girl. Mm -hmm. So this one was a little different in that the chapters switched between his viewpoint and the viewpoint of the girl that brought him the new piece of evidence. Okay. It goes back in time through her school year up until the boy is found dead. So you get all the backstory. Meanwhile, they're investigating and interviewing people again and doing all this stuff. But there's just some really beautiful writing about how confusing it is and how people are telling you all these different things about what you need to do and be and you know you need to be afraid all the time but you know you need to be brave and be yourself but like don't go out after dark and just amazing writing about what it's like oh so that's really no I'm totally conflicted (laughs) because her other book I was so annoyed at so overall I feel much better about um the likeness is the second book and goes with the 
very first book, obviously, where the cop um, was involved in, he was one of the three kids that disappeared in the woods and came back and then they're injured, they're investigating a murder in those same woods 20 years later, but he doesn't, you know. Those two are related? Those two books? The likeness and the one about the missing kid? In the, Yes, in that... Describe, the guy, go so, ahead and describe the likeness. I mean, maybe so I'm the woman, misremembering. The woman partner... Yes. ...from the first book, In yeah. the Woods, is now the narrator for the likeness. And she infiltrates the young, yeah. like, college, yeah. rich kid's house, and she yes. lives... All right, so I read that one, like... Maybe a year ago. I talked about it. Oh, really? Uh-huh. In oh, one well, of I don't our remember podcasts. that either. So. <laughs> I had to go back and listen to it. Uh-huh. Yeah. So this one, okay. So, I mean, it doesn't really matter. She doesn't, she kind of refers back to it. So after the investigation goes all sideways, she's now working in domestic violence, but the body of a woman is found kind of in the way suburbs of Dublin who looks exactly like her and is using the fake name that she had used when she was an undercover agent for the police force. She started off doing undercover and then got switched to murder. So it's really weird. Um, They don't really have any leads. So they decide, we'll put you in as this woman and go back in there and investigate and then we'll figure it out. So it's all kind of crazy. What I really liked about this one, I mean, the investigation was interesting. There's a lot of, why are we doing this? Is this the only way to do this? Is this a good thing? We're kind of messing with these people. They don't know that they're right, and she's got she's got to keep her cover twenty four seven. Yeah, they were a really tight knit group of five. They were grad students. They lived together. They all were in the same department, and you know had been together for months. Like they had been friends for at least a year, and then they moved in together to this house. So all these little things that could trip her up. Um, So that part was kind of interesting. But then what I really liked was. I think a lot of times in books and movies, you get women in situations where they're supposed to be really strong and powerful, and then something happens and they get beat up by a man. Right. And in this, she was fully a cop. She was fully trained. She knew what she was doing, and that did not stop. And I really, there were scenes where it could have gone the other way. Yeah. And it didn't. You're like, oh, yeah, she knows what she's doing. Sort of. So, I mean... You were worried that she was going to blow her cover somehow or that something was going to give her away because, like, she had some weird tell, didn't she? Well, she ate onions and the... Oh, right. The lady didn't. I mean, there were were definitely places where she would have screwed up, but she never let that get to her. She never... I mean, she won in the end, so won. (laughs) She figured it out and handled the situation. If I'm remembering... Our chat about that book after I read it, I think my problem with it was they didn't sound like 22-year-olds. Well, I think they were in their mid-20s. They, they didn't sound like 25-year-olds. Well, they were also weird. But that could They be. were a really weird group of people. They were. That was part of it. Yeah. That they were really weird. And I'm really glad. I think I'm glad that I watched the TV show first because they did it in like two and a half episodes. And her books are not short. There's a lot of detail. And if I had read this book and then watched it, I would have been super annoyed. (laughs) So, yeah. I mean, that's often the case. All right, moving on. Um, I listened to The Seven and a Half Deaths of Evelyn Hardcastle by Stuart Turton, which is kind of a Groundhog Day thing. So the first day he wakes up with no memory, 
is at this country house and all this weird stuff is going on. The premise is he's going to wake up in eight different bodies and he has to solve a murder that's going to happen at the end of the day. So he has eight days to get it right. And if he doesn't figure it out, his mind's going to be wiped again and he goes back to the beginning and starts over. And there's lots of twists and turns and other people trying to solve the murder and what's going on and it's all craziness. I liked it. I liked the plot. I liked the concept. The writing was a little bit melodramatic at times. It would end a chapter with, and then it was darkness. <laughs> Part of that was the narrator, I think. So I'm not sure that if I had been reading it, it would have annoyed me quite as much. Yeah, there were times when I was like, this is really just too silly. But the mystery was good. The plot was good. The, the craziness was a little good. There's some, there's like a homicidal maniac running around trying to kill him all the time in all those different bodies. So that was a little... Weird, the descriptions of when he gets stabbed is a little gory. So, again with the melodrama, but overall, pretty cool. That's The Seven and a Half Deaths of Evelyn Hardcastle by Stuart Turton. And then I read Come Tumbling Down by Seanan McGuire, which is book five in the Wayward Children's series. Was this young adult? Yeah, and they're pretty short books. They're maybe 200 pages, and they're a little bit, they're like a trade paperback size, not mm -hmm. a hard regular hardcover, so a little bit smaller. The premise is that children disappear through doors all the time, like Narnia kind of thing, uh -huh. and then they come back, and what happens to them then, right? No one's going to believe them. A lot of them are fine. They're like, okay, whatever, I go back to my regular life, but a lot of times they feel like that world was their home, and no one will believe them, and you know, how do they adjust to what they now feel is not their home? So many parallels and analogies and whatnot. But anyway, so this one is book five, goes back to the main characters from the very first book. There's an adventure. I, don't, I feel like it's a series. I don't really need to go fully into it. You're either into it or you think that concept sounds interesting. Yeah. So yeah, it's, I really enjoyed it. She's a beautiful writer. Really weird. It's a good, good one. for you. Yeah, it's good. <laughs> and then I am listening to 112263 by Stephen King, which is like 30 hours of audio. So I'm not so sure. So long. Not sure that I'm going to make it through. And then... Ooh, do you listen to it at a little bit accelerated speed? I do that sometimes. Listen to like one and a quarter. Yeah, I've tried it and it just feels too fast. Depends on the narrator for sure. Yeah. This one I could try. He's definitely taking his time. So I'm, I'm only like 45 minutes into it. So I've got a ways to go. Yeah, you do. And then I'm reading The Secret Chapter by Genevieve Cogman, which is book six in the Invisible Library series, which is where there's a secret library and they collect books from all the different places in the multiverse, and that can change history. There's fae and dragon fighting, and they are kind of maintaining the balance. Do you this think they continues. keep sketchbooks in there? The right answer is yes. <sighs> but that's not, well, no. I think they're more interested in the printed word. Which there's is a kind lot of, of writing in sketchbooks. Well, if there's writing, and it's, I think, I don't know, they don't talk about <laughs> sketchbooks. Darn it. Sorry. All right. I think that is it. Okay. Go. So last time. Oh, yes. <laughs> this is good. You guys are going to like this. Last time we recorded, I was talking about, I don't even remember which book I was telling you about, if it was... It was a Karen Slaughter audiobook. And I was struggling a little bit because 
I felt like I was perhaps reading them out of order. They were recommended to me by my friend, and so I had started off with The Kept Woman, and then I remembered that she said I needed to read it in order, and so I switched to The Last Widow, and then we recorded, and I was had I thought I was near done with The Last Widow, and so came in and I said, you know, it's really interesting. I'm listening along while I paint. And clearly, one should not listen to a series of audiobooks by the same author with the same characters because I had been, like, interchanging the two of them. They also have very similar titles. They have very similar... And the covers are very similar looking. And the narrator is the same. And it's an audiobook. And my kid was home on concussion protocol, and he's fine. But he interrupted me, like, every 15 minutes. And so I would turn it off and then turn it back on again. And I wasn't really, clearly was not paying one bit of attention. And basically had listened to these two books on and off, on and off, for, like, 40% of each book, 38 and 35% of each book. And I had amalgamated the whole thing. And I was wondering why I couldn't figure out what was going on in this mystery. And I felt like really stupid. So when I realized what I was doing, I reached out to Monica and said, hey, you might want to scrap my... But you were very coherent about it. It didn't sound like you were confused. Well, The only reason you thought you were confused is because you... I thought you had said you were starting in the second book or something. Like, she had said, you don't need to read this one. Read this one. It's fine. And so you thought you had kind of jumped into the middle. Right. And, but it... (laughs) There was just a lot more jumping than you... just a lot more jumping than I realized. And I still don't know which one (laughs) comes first. So I've listened to... So once we realized that I can't be trusted with an audiobook, <laughs> I listened to only one and finished that one, The Kept Woman. You sure? Yeah, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> and now I need to give myself some time so that I can go back into the other one, which I can't even remember what it's called. The Widow? Last Widow? Something oh, wait, widow. no, I'm getting it wrong. <laughs> the Kept Woman is the one I had to pause. Okay. So you finished? And I finished the last one. Right, you finished one of them, and you're starting on the other one. But basically, it's the same book. Well, yeah, apparently. It's so crazy. Oh, my gosh. Anyway. (laughs) (laughs) The lesson here is, if you're going to listen to two books, like, delete the other one that looks exactly like it and has the same narrator and the same characters so that you don't get confused. And almost the same title. Yeah. I mean, a very similar title. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) I felt pretty stupid for doing that. I can totally see why it would happen, though. Makes sense. And it's a good story, which is what it's all about. That's right. Okay. Easier to keep track of actual books. It's so much easier. So I read this book. I think I picked it up because of the cover. It has a partridge on it, and, you know, I'm a sucker for a bird. It's very cute. And it's called Ellie and the Harp Maker by Hazel Pryor. 
This takes place in modern day English Moors, it says. And this is a really interesting, I think it might be considered a romance, but it is not so romantical for the first 80% of it. It's, it's really tricky. We have a character, her name's Ellie, and she is a housewife in these, this English town. She keeps telling herself that she's happily married, but isn't. And we're not really sure what it is about her husband. He's kind of a drinker. He's kind of a jerk, but it's, there's something, there's a little something missing. Well, she goes out walking and she finds this barn in her neighborhood and inside is a guy who is making harps there in his barn. Now, I love this part because that kind of craftsmanship is fascinating to me and I love instruments and I wish that I could see her source imagery for for how she she's very descriptive about the harps and the harp barn. The guy is I what I would consider and this might be totally inaccurate, but he is quirky and it might be that he's just really quirky and socially awkward or he could be maybe autism or um Asperger's spectrum. I say that really gently because she doesn't ever discuss it, but there's a lot of people who are looking out for him in a way that seems a little bit more than normal. Yeah, it just seems like they're overly protective of him, right. his sister in particular. He do- he doesn't really know how to manage his money. He doesn't understand interpersonal relationships. So while I have no evidence that he has any kind of diagnosis, I don't know that he... It could certainly be read as that. Right. I think you could read it that way. He is delightful. He really enjoys his work as a craftsman. He immediately gives her a harp because he doesn't recognize the the value of... In some cases, he doesn't recognize the value of what he does, but he also wants to like bring her joy because she is kind of extroverted and says... You know, it's on my list to learn how to play the harp. I'm super curious about this. And Are these the big honking? Uh, I think so. Wow. So he, she puts it in her car and takes it home. And her husband is immediately suspicious of this. Like, why would he give you a harp? And there's just, this is all in the first couple pages. You know, it's like oh. this amazing amount of drama over a gift. But the But it is a substantial gift. So it's... You're wrestling with that for a good part of the book. The rest of our story takes us on this journey through their two lives and their relationships apart from each other, and they build a friendship, and it is all very platonic, and she really grows to respect him and how he sees the world. And I think my trouble with it is I didn't understand... Like there wasn't enough of her internal search for why she's drawn to this guy when if she's so happy with her husband or why she's telling everyone she's so happy with her husband. It comes to a head. Things fall apart unexpectedly. And there's lots of surprises and that kind of thing. And it has a, a happy ending. I, I don't know if it's so much a romance 
But it doesn't it def- sound like it doesn't sound like the whole guiding principle is getting the two of them together. I feel like you need a little bit of that like yeah. obviousness that they're gonna end up. Yeah, there. That's and if she's married to someone else. Yeah, it's kind of untraditional, non-traditional. If it's a romance, I don't know. I'm not an expert. There is a good amount of growth out of him, and hearing his thought processes really kept me in for the long haul. Cool. So. That's Ellie and the Heartmaker. Then I had my big read for Lemon Latitude. And for this week, it's a book called The Secret River by Kate Grenville. This won a Man Booker Prize in 2006, and it was amazing. This is a, a huge undertaking on her part. She embarked on this book in a in a way to do some of her own like genealogical story finding. It takes place at the beginning of the 19th century in Australia on the along the east coast like just Sydney and north of Sydney when the British prisoners were shipped there to do like I'm no expert in this but they were meant to help set up a colony and be farmhands and like laborers and that kind of thing. And so the main character, William Thornhill, he is charged of like petty larceny in London and he gets a lifetime of servitude in the new colony of New South Wales. In a clever move, his amazing wife, she's amazing through nearly throughout the whole book. Her name is Sal. She decides to go and be one of the colonists. And so she, but she's able to become his guardian. So in this incredible turn of gender roles for like the first five years until he's granted clemency, she's his boss. And so they have, there's like a little bit of banter about that. I wish we had cracked that egg a little bit more because I think that that was ripe. It's an interesting role and it must have happened because I feel like a lot of this is historically based. So anyway, they land in New South Wales, just north, or they're in Sydney initially. And um, she is running a, um, she's running a pub and taking care of their children, and they live in an attachment to the pub. And he's apprenticing with some watermen, because it's there, right there in Sydney Harbor, so he's moving stuff around. And, and then he befriends somebody, and they go up the coast. And just north of Sydney, there's, an, there's another, like, river inlet, and all of these waterways branch, well, they branch into that harbor, that, and I don't know the exact name of it. And so then they're in there on those waterways, and he's learning that you can just take, and I'm using air quotes, you can just take a piece of land. The British don't really have a system for this yet. The The major flaw to this taking a piece of land is that there is an indigenous population who lives there. Now, historically, at the time, I think that there were actual indigenous people that had roots through this area, but I don't know if the particular conflicts and that kind of thing that happened in the book are historically accurate because she was trying to say this is one take on how it might have been. So anyway, 
he eventually gets his clemency and he sets up a business where he's going to run trade up from Sydney up into that secret river area. And he takes over this piece of land, which is, it sounds like it's a little peninsula that juts into the river, which means that it's really accessible. And then that's when it gets really tricky. His wife wants to go back to England now that they're free, but he realizes that just in the exchanges that he has with other people, that people will never forget that he was a prisoner and that he had spent time there and his kids don't know any other land. And she's really good at that sort of immigrant colonist push-pull, you know, like we could go back, but should we stay and we have a different life here? And the hard part is what's happening with the indigenous, with the Aboriginal people, because... Does she look at that much? Oh, tons. Oh, okay. And it's really hard because you want him to see, like, you don't, you can't just take this land. And there's another British guy who keeps saying to him, if you're going to take a little, you have to give a little. You know, when he's, he's talking about, like, leave the Aboriginal people something if they're giving you something like it's got to be you can't just take this you know or you can't take a hundred acres so people are trying to get him to see it from the how the aboriginal people look at it they're a little bit more nomadic and so they will come through at different seasons mm-hmm. it feels like it it's just it's a really beautiful beautiful read through this time period and it comes to a terrible conclusion for the Aboriginal people. There's a battle and that part is very hard to read, but I feel like it's not unlike what has happened to some of our native, many of our native American people here in the United States. She handles it really beautifully. And I think it's so well done. It's not the most lighthearted book, but I could not stop reading it. It was It's so well written. One thing, though, that kind of made me smile was when we talked last time, I was telling you about how, how I was looking at yarn companies in Australia. Mm-hmm. And there was that one company, I'm going to forget which one now, that had the Murnong pattern, mm-hmm. which was based on the Yam Daisy. Right. I'd never... I still haven't really seen that in anything else that I've read, but I came across it in the yarn thing. And then when I was reading this book, one of the first gifts from the native, from the Aboriginal people to Will and his wife is this, they planted them a whole patch of the yam daisies. And I was like, so full circle, you know, that that was their... That was their gift, and and they didn't see it that way, and made me really sad. But anyway, The Secret River, Kate Grenville, superb book. Nice. So I think that's probably enough for one one episode. (laughs) Stitches is tomorrow. By the time you guys hear this, it will be over, which just makes me a little bit sad already. But then it'll come back around. Well, and now I have a goal for next year. Yes, very exciting. So until then, make sure to do something you love every day. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Show notes can be found at craftcookreadrepeat.podbean.com. You can find us on Instagram 
book read repeat or Courtney SF. That's C-O-R-T-N-E-Y-S-F. On Ravelry, I'm Magdon, M-A-G-D-O-N. And if you have any questions or comments, email us at craftcookreadrepeat at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.